Today, we're going to be looking over the Green New Deal. Yes, that bill. The bill that everyone can't stop talking about. Well, what is in this bill? What is the ideology behind it? How much pain did I experience reading this bill? And what can you do to influence the economy in a good way in contrast to this Green New Deal's plan? Let's talk about it here on The Green Conversation. I'm your host, Leo Jenko. As we know, since we were all alive, the Senate vote for the Green New Deal was a complete embarrassment. There was no support, 57 to 0, with 43 abstaining. So 57 Republicans went on record denying the bill, and no Democrats went on record to support the bill. I understand that they had no chance with the Republican-controlled Senate, but they didn't even want to show documented support. How much of a beta do you have to be to back a bill and then pull out at the last minute? So now the bill is dead on Capitol Hill. But for some reason, this policy is still being brought about, lingering in our society like a virus. We are seeing trends in local and state politics reflecting this title of Green New Deal. A Google News search will tell you how prevalent it still remains. Early throughout the year 2021, more news emerged, pushing the broken remnants of this deal. Some online journalists argue the Green New Deal needs to be global. Politico reported that progressives are trying to reintroduce the Green New Deal. CBS News and NPR both reported parallels of the Green New Deal in Biden's environmental plans. This idea apparently is not going away anytime soon. Well, that's because the Green New Deal is not about actual legislation. It's about an ideology, a very confusing ideology at that. You see, when you talk about the Green New Deal in common discussions or with everyday people, most people do not seem well-informed on the wording or purpose of the Green New Deal. Most people who support the bill will agree based on either party affiliation or in hopes to help the environment. And I don't think they're really thinking of the relationships in society that would be tugged and strained if this bill passed. And if they do, I highly doubt that they understand the ramifications. After the deal was proposed, a narrative spread throughout social media, using this deal as the reason to start environmental discussions. But there weren't really many discussions on the bill itself. Most news articles focused on the idea of helping the environment through the same ideology of the Green New Deal. An article by news journal Nature is the perfect example of the narrative and discussions within these articles. Quote, The climate breakdown is a result of a capitalist system seeking to expand profitable extraction beyond the carrying capacity of the planet. What is needed now is to move beyond the static debate about growth or no growth and instead focus on fundamentally redirecting development towards achieving the goal of a more inclusive and sustainable planet. We need to pivot from a reactive market failure fixing approach towards a proactive market shaping one. Unquote. From the very beginning, you can tell that they are trying to be an intellectual with these elaborate descriptions in their sentences. I had to do a double take with this article, and I have a PhD. But ultimately, there was nothing about the proper steps to get where we needed to be, or the bill which sparked this discussion. This sounds all perfect in theology. 
But again, the ideology the Green New Deal takes is expressed later in the article, and things get pretty dark. Quote, Governments are the only actors capable of underwriting the scale of investments required, of coordinating multiple actors around the common goal of decarbonization, and of ensuring the costs and benefits of a green transition are distributed equitably across society so that social injustices are tackled alongside environmental crises. Unquote. The ideology that the government is our savior is probably one of the worst positions for any environmental approach. What is distributed equitably across society? Reality check, the land is not equally distributed with resources. The economic transactions to make sure that every part of human ecology has the same resources is going to fail. The promise in this message is believed by the masses too, and you can thank the media for that one. But before people are up in arms that I do not know what's in the bill, as a scholar, I did the right thing and downloaded HRES 109 to figure out this ideology. I painstakingly read over this bill, and it was a mess, full of jargon and repetitive statements. It also barely elaborated on the statements it made. The first thing that caught my eye, though, was the statement, quote, recognize the duty of the federal government to create a Green New Deal, unquote. So, you already have an idea of where this is going to be heading. This bill starts out by declaring human activity responsible for the climate issue. While a probable statement, the extent is still unknown. And if we don't know the extent, how can we know if our actions can reverse course? By no means am I dismissing our responsibility. But we need to understand how much we can impact the environment negatively and positively first. After this scathing statement on our responsibility, it starts to list the costs from climate change. After those costs, the bill goes off on the current crises we are experiencing because of climate change. However, there are crises that do not directly relate to the climate issue. But I think the idea of the bill is that people will be impacted unevenly due to climate change. But again, I don't see that as a crisis of the environment. It's more of a crisis in our social organization. So, for example, inadequate resources for public sector workers to confront the challenges of climate change is not the direct result of the climate issue. It deals with technology and resources and the distribution of wealth. In fact, the uneven distribution of resources across communities, local, state, and federal government is a problem, but not within this context of the bill. And this is where the bill plays two fronts that don't mix well. First, the bill wants legislation to handle the climate. And second, the bill wants to handle social issues. The problem is, not everything we do for climate will equally impact the population. Particularly in southern and western USA, where there are more minorities of black Americans. The minorities the Democrat Party loves to dote on. For anyone who has lived in the south from Southern California to Florida and all along the border, you know it's hot. And with climate change, it will get hotter. When we do handle the climate and the earth theoretically cools down, it's going to be easier to live in those areas. 
compared to the north where it's still relatively easy now, but it's going to get colder. You're going to have winters that are going to be longer. You're going to have snow that will last longer. Any northerner who's moved down to the south typically has the statement, I like the weather here better because I'm not trapped by white stuff. So no, you won't have equitable outcomes just by the nature of it all. So this bill has potential to contradict itself already. Southern and Western areas of the USA are going to benefit from improved climate more than the North in terms of human living. So after listing plausible and not so plausible problems, we finally get into the meat of the bill, redefining the role of the federal government to fight climate change. The bill proposes a legal standard of the federal government to enforce a goal for the whole nation and market. In other words, the government is granted authority over the market and production, not the people. And this is the tip of the iceberg of how complicated the bill tries to rewrite the government for climate. And politicians try to dumb it down for the public, but this is inappropriate. Relationships between the government and the economy and the environment is very complex. Dumbing it down is incomplete information. Some may say this may mislead the public. This is why it is important to provide references for people to look over and learn more about the topic. So after this redefinition of the federal government, there is a list of goals that the bill wants to push for. Goals like zero greenhouse gases, secure air, water, climate, uh, community resiliency, healthy foods, access to nature, sustainable environments, creating millions of jobs, which somehow will help the environment, invest in infrastructure, and just to put the cherry on top, promote justice and equity. If you agree or don't agree with the goals, that's not the point. The bill ignores our current state of development and the historical relationships within our economy. Structure does not change quickly unless a catastrophic event occurs, and we do not want that. Well, why would this bill be written in such a way where it ignores the current understanding of the economy? Just listen to how AOC emphasizes the reading of the bill, which to me is a clear sign that the bill was made from an emotional stance than from wisdom on the structure of the nation. It is the sense of the House of Representatives that, one, it is the duty of the federal government to create a Green New Deal, a, to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions through a fair and just transition for all communities and workers. B, to create millions of good, high-wage jobs and ensure prosperity and economic security for all people in the United States. C, to invest in the infrastructure and industry of the United States to sustainably meet the challenges of the 21st century. D, to secure for all people of the United States for generations to come. One, clean water. Two, climate and community resiliency. Three, healthy food four, access to nature, and five, a sustainable environment, and E. To okay, she has an A for performance, 
But for me, this performance cannot replace wisdom and understanding. I felt like this was one of my students' presentations more than actual professional debates and discussions on Capitol Hill. Moving on, though, without any wisdom, just further down, the bill introduces the plan to achieve these goals, which is a lengthy discussion to promote community resiliency against weather. And this is where the bill heavily goes into the idea of infrastructure, but again, it doesn't really tell you how funding will be directed for initiatives to start infrastructure in a green way. This fast-track, economically destructive bill is one of the worst attempts at environmental protection yet. It wears an eco-justice sheepskin to promote socialism and does not have a full understanding of the economy. The bill lacks philosophical understanding of the capitalistic relationship between government, business, and labor and how this relates to our consumption and production using natural resources. From my understanding, the government is funded by taxes, fees, penalties, and donations, mainly coming from the top 10%. However, we know that major corporations can avoid federal taxes through donations and other means, and we, uh, common people, don't have the income to supplement the governments. In addition, forcing corporate businesses to pay more taxes will likely stifle business growth, furthering the hindrance of funding towards the government. So how in the world can these green initiatives be funded without drastically changing our economy? I usually get my understanding of the relationships in our economy between the governments and business is from a book called The Fiscal Crisis by James O'Connor, who was a socialist scholar who recently passed away. His book is a good way to learn about the complexities of our economy and government-funded services. It lays out the relationships between the government and corporate businesses around the early 1960s and early 70s. Fair warning, I'm going to try my best to wrap it up in a comprehensive summary, but you need to read the book to fully understand. Within this book, the author discusses three circles within our current economy, the corporate sector, the government sector, and the competitive sector. The largest circle is the corporate sector where employment and wages have a complicated relationship with profit and growth. The smallest circle is the competitive sector where wages have a larger influence on employment and labor and productivity. Due to the labor relationships within the competitive sector, turnover is higher for those businesses. So you can think of restaurants. There is a constant turnover of employees. Profit and wages are largely dictated by customer traffic, appeal, and interaction. For comparison, a two-star Google review of a Walmart is not going to affect its existence or customer traffic compared to a restaurant. Along with the labor instability in the competitive sector, the corporate sector also lowers employed labor through technological development, which increases productivity and promotes economic growth within the corporate sector. However, the stability of labor in the corporate sector is far more stable than the competitive sector thanks to those technologies. Overall, labor that is unable to find employment become unemployed, and if that unemployed grows, businesses no longer have consumers. And this is where the government sector comes into play. 
the government sector responds by establishing services to assist the unemployed labor so the labor can purchase product and keep a growing circulation of monetary trade within the competitive and corporate sector. However, again, as the corporate sector grows and accumulates more capital compared to the competitive sector, the ability of the competitive sector to compensate labor dwindles. The government then attempts to address the issue by implementing more services. Now we have a cascading cycle of government services that is supplied by taxes and fees. And when there is no money for those services, the corporate sector is lobbied to assist the government. However, the author recognizes that if the government taxes the corporate sector too far, economic growth will stagnate. The government in the long term won't get the money for these taxes if monetary assets aren't circulating. However, there is not enough capital flowing to the government to supply services currently. And here is our dilemma with the Green New Deal. They want to add more services, but realistically, we cannot fund these services. It will ultimately fail and collapse our economy. The bill believes the government is able to supply environmental services with the vast amount of money within the corporate sector, but this is short-term thinking. The long-term impacts are not considered one bit. Now, this doesn't mean you should dismiss greener initiatives. We just need to trust and invest in businesses that promote and engender these environmental values. So we, we can start by stepping into more greener forms of energy. We can start investing in companies that encourage new greener development. We can buy products that take less energy to consume. And we can cut down on buying products that are not long-term. For instance, buy a product that will last five to 10 years. You can also start to shop at local farms and groceries because they consume less to make their products and to sell. If, if you have enough money, you can start changing your investments in stocks. This is all the stuff we've heard already. Conservatives can start by using their dollars. Here's an analogy for you to understand my thinking. You cannot fix a machine from the outside. You must open up the panel and get in there yourself. And the government is not the machine as some would believe. The market is the machine. Now, for conservatives, you may want to reflect on how human society in general conflicts with the environment to make these investments. But you don't have to believe capitalism is evil. So what is this trying to do? Well, theoretically, we're trying to get the market to start forming around our demands and greener technologies and environmental health should theoretically follow. Overall, AOC is right. There needs to be a change in how we treat the environment through our economy. However, a market approach where there is a change in consumer culture could impact the behaviors of the market. And that should have been the lesson from the Green New Deal not the government taking over and dictating our market and our lives. However, you should be mindful. I say this as a warning, but not an ultimatum. Do not invest in companies that are known for their ties and works with fossil fuels. This only keeps the same players in the economy that dictate energy and business. All you're doing is putting old wine in a new skin. Again, only a warning, not an ultimatum. If you believe a company like Ford or Coke is working for better energy, that is your discretion, and I will not condemn you. 
Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned for more episodes. Episodes are released on the 15th and 30th of each month for as long as the season lasts. But you can go onto my website, sign up as a member, and get content all year round. As well, take some time to think about how you can get into the market and affect our economic relationship with the environment. Talk to you all next time. You just listened to The Green Conversation with Leo. If you would like to contribute to the podcast, please visit leojenko.org and sign up to be a member of the community. As a member, you can get content all year long compared to public listeners. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Search for The Green Conversation. Music was produced by Michael David Mobley. Sound and scripts were produced in-house. Research to make this episode is cited in the episode description. If you would like to make a one-time donation, please contact me for further details. Contact information is on the website. Look for the next episode in two weeks. See you then.